Welcome to Theologically Speaking, a podcast of BJU Seminary. I'm your host, Eric Newton. How do we think about the ideas arising within us and swirling around us? And how do we minister in a world like ours? If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, we have to know God and think His thoughts after Him. Therefore, the mission of Theologically Speaking is to have conversations that help listeners cultivate theological habits of mind and heart and ministry. In a recent podcast, Dr. Troy Manning of Bibles International suggested that the two great needs in missions today are theological education and Bible translation. And uh, he and I had the privilege of discussing the latter of those. And today I'm really grateful to have with me Dr. Joel Arnold uh, to discuss the, the first of those. Joel is a 2011 PhD grad from BJU Seminary. And for the past several years, he served as a missionary professor at Bob Jones Memorial Bible College in Metro Manila, Philippines. Uh, Joel and his wife Sarah have four children. He uh, has a website, joelarnold.com. And uh, he is uh, joining me today, actually here from the States. So, Joel, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to have this conversation on Theologically Speaking. Thank you. I've already enjoyed listening to your other conversations. I'm a follower of the podcast, and I'm delighted to join with you this way. Uh, let's start off here very simply. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do and uh, how long you've been in the Philippines, that sort of thing. That's great. Um, so I'm grateful looking back my educational time at BJU and the way that prepared me for what I do now, which is essentially the same thing, just in a cross-cultural context. So now I am seeking to train young men and women, um, and that's both undergrad level up into the seminary, seminary level. That's local in Quezon City, which is our college part of Metro Manila. And that ministry has been there for 30 years. I just get to step in, mm-hmm. <laughs> build on the hard work of people that came before. And then uh, other things that happen, I get to travel, uh, at least before 2020, I did a lot of traveling around Southeast Asia and within the Philippines and other countries too. I love that. Um, a lot of block classes will jump in place and, into a place and hold a seven-week block class or seven-day block class and things like that. And then one other piece is a lot of teaching online uh, before 2020 also. So there's a program that I've worked on together with Dr. Kevin Eberlin offering doctoral level classes. And the guys on that, since it's all online, are all over the world. Southeast Asia primarily, but other places too. So that's my delight. I, I love being able to teach and invest in young men and women, and particularly investing in young men for the ministry. Yeah, that's great. And remind me, how, uh, when did you uh, first arrive in the Philippines? How many years has that been? Great. Uh, 2013. Okay. So all together coming up on about uh, eight years, depending on how you count it. Okay. Uh, before we get to our topic specifically, maybe just one other uh, question in terms of uh, you and uh, family ministry. Uh, unlike probably most of us, you've experienced, you mentioned 2020 and the irregularity of it. You've experienced the pandemic uh, in more than one place. You're in the United States now, but you were in the Philippines, have been in the Philippines most of the last 12 months. Uh, any reflections on, you know, being a Christian 
husband, father, missionary teacher uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's so it was very intriguing, I think, to see the differences in cultural cultural responses. Um, yeah, I'm on social media and I, I read American stories. So you see that side of it. And then in the Philippines, there would be a different response to that. We were actually in Hong Kong the week before everything really hit or started going worldwide. And so kind of watching the response there uh, and then talking to other missionary friends around the world. Anyway, it's very fascinating how much this gets put through the lens of culture and different groups of people respond in very different ways. Um, specifically for us in the Philippines, you know, working through with our kids, there was a, it was a really, it was a really strong lockdown. There was a, a couple of months, maybe four or five months where our kids didn't go outside the house at all. Mm. Um, and that wasn't, that wasn't our choice. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, how to work with that with them so that there's no sense of, um, I don't know, frustration with that. Okay. This is, this is God's direction for us right now. And we're content with that. Uh, so I had to be, I wanted to be really careful about how I talked about it in front of them and then just processing this for them. I was desperate for them that they would look back on this 10 years from now and remember how God provided and God directed. And he did. <laughs> so, so those are some reflections. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk uh, about cross-cultural theological education. And uh, you've mentioned some of the avenues that God has uh, enabled you to travel down in relation to that over the past decade or so. Um, how about we start with this? Let's imagine uh, somebody graduating from seminary next year, and he's evaluating his opportunities. Uh, we have listeners who are in seminary. We have listeners who are pastors, and they're um, you know, training uh, young men in, in, in their own ministries and trying to uh, help guide people in discerning what the Lord might have for them in the future. Um, and, and all of us, you know, have this desire to see uh, the Great Commission uh, played out and, and be accomplished and participate in that in one form or another. So if somebody's evaluating these opportunities, maybe kind of the position that you were uh, 12, 15 years ago, is there a reason to prefer theological education uh, outside of the U.S. or, or some form of, of cross-cultural teaching? Um, is that preferable? Right. I mean, I'll, I'll, so I'll start this direction uh, for myself. I, I, I'm, I feel very privileged to get to do this. And one of the reasons is I, I just think there, there are things that you get to do um, right away, and certainly that accumulates as you get more years and more experience and language learning, things like that. But you get to do things that... I don't feel like I would I would get those same opportunities in the U.S. Um, if we want to see how theology is applied and lived out in different contexts and in different scenarios, it's it's really beautiful to watch some of those cultural differences mm -hmm. and to see the same truths applied in different ways, and then to become part of that, and then kind of I, I feel like sitting on the front lines is just delightful. Um, with my Filipino brothers and sisters in our church and seeing how God is using them. I love being part of that. 
So I would say that, I mean, in terms of um, just opportunities, it's something to jump for. (laughs) And I feel very much privileged with it. Um, But I'll give another concept here. And so I'll pull, I'm thinking from a concept from finance. Um, There's this concept of arbitrage where somebody looks around and they see, you know, say Venezuela, the price of oil is really low because they have a lot of it. You go somewhere else like the Philippines or Hawaii and it's really expensive. And so arbitrage, you, you balance those imbalances out um, and you try to bring it from one place to another. And uh, my vision or, or framework I would use for the Great Commission is that Christians are supposed to look around the world for things like that in the sense of imbalances and, and the Great Commission is to say, don't just be in an enclave somewhere where I'm surrounded strictly only by Christians, and therefore we feel safe, and we just don't worry about some other imbalance somewhere else. Yeah. Um, in terms of theological education, the American context, and I'm a beneficiary of this, is just really wealthy. I mean, almost an embarrassing riches. That's fine. That's financial too, but it extends out into the the areas of so religious resources, educational resources. I mean, the books that we can buy, but also just the ease of the colleges and seminaries we can attend. It's just it's just a lot of wealth. So I'll hear about you know a, a small or mid sized church looking for a pastor, and they get eight guys apply with doctorates. Um, that's great. I'm, I, I support it and I applaud it and I'm grateful for it because I value this and I've given my life to theological education. At the same time, you wish that you could pick up some of that and arbitrage, move it across to somewhere else and see some of those riches shared. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the vision of what you're pursuing with theological education in some of these contexts where you can go on, go in taking some of the things that I've, I've richly benefited from by other people's investment in me. And you're able to go somewhere and hand off some of that information. Um, and in some of these, con- many of these contexts, uh, I alluded to block classes, go in somewhere and hold five days or seven days of classes. Mm-hmm. People are hungry and they're ready. And uh, I feel like as I'm teaching, I'm just riding on this wave of energy. People really want this content. And that just makes teaching delightful. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's good. It, is it? Um, h- how different is it? And, you know, we talk about um, you've been educated in the United States, obviously, and now have several years of experience doing this cross culturally, uh, not just in the Philippines and not just to Filipinos, as I, I understand it. Um, how different is it to teach theology? cross-culturally? Do you feel like there are significant differences uh, in your methods, uh, your, your content, your approach, and, and maybe has that changed and developed even as you've, you've been in the Philippines over the past few years? It's good. Um, okay, so I'll kind of go opposite directions here. Um, I'll, I'll start out this direction. So there are a lot of cases where I go in as a cultural outsider. I just arrive in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I just arrive in a context and I don't know the context. I'm a guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like I'm flying blind. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know what potholes are there or I don't know. Um, I don't know the configuration of thoughts that are in minds. So you do. You feel very much flying blind as opposed to 
being in the Philippines or in a home context where you, you, you know, you, you kind of feel like, you know, the map a little better. Right. And if I compare that to, so the Philippines is an English speaking country. We get a lot of guests coming in, um, not just the BJNBC, but lots of other things happening, seminars and conferences from American pastors coming across. I'm grateful for that. And those things really are a blessing and a help. It's a, it's a privilege that we have that kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. It is interesting when guests come in to watch and there will just be, there will be comments or maybe an illustration or something that's just really, really culturally distracting. Maybe, you know, they mention an amount of money or, or something like that. And you kind of, you, you cringe inside a little bit. Um, and that may be in comparison to like one of my coworkers that's been there for 20 or 30 years and they, they know how to make the applications that fit the context. Um, of course, the Olympians on this in every context, they're going to be the people that are from there. So, you know, the, the Filipino pastors and teachers are just going to nail it. They're going to know exactly the idiom, right where to go. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that. And it, so it really does make a difference if you're coming in blind and you don't know anything about the context. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go the other direction now, though, which is there there are times or there are discussions in missiology about like a, a contextualized theology. Right. So we need to have Filipino theology or Asian theology or African contextualized theology and those types of things. Again, I applaud it in the sense that I am glad for people all over the world. We need to participate in the theological conversation right. and they will bring an, an interesting perspective um, they will ask questions we would never think to ask. Mm -hmm. So that's great. But I'm continually astounded in my own teaching. And I would say just the passage of time increases this, how not dissimilar, <laughs> how, how just consistent the and con continuous theology is across these different contexts. Yeah. Um, so that a, a theological concept that has currency and helps shape our thought or answer human questions or needs or problems in the U.S. It's exactly the same answer in the Philippines. You might you you might phrase it differently. You might use a different illustration. Mm -hmm. um, but the Word of God speaks to human hearts, and I guess a piece of this or a component of this in my mind is that to describe me as a human. I mean, you could describe me as male, American, race, you know, whatever. But the most basic categories for me are that I'm a human being made in God's image, broken by the fall, restored by the cross. And those things are universal. Right. So <laughs> because we're, we look across at each other as humans, we compare to one another, we highlight the differences. Okay, here's race, here's culture, here's background. But, but those core things are so... There's, they're so basic to my nature and my being, and those things don't change, that you really can take the core theology and just carry it across. Yeah. Um, and the last concept I'll throw in here is questions. I do think if there are going to be differences, there might be questions, uh, differences in the questions you ask. So on an American context, you might not think to ask certain questions that Filipinos might ask. Um, and I see that I collect maybe, I probably collect a hundred questions from my students every week. It's just the way my classes are set up. And so I'm reading tons of these questions. 
So there's probably a five or seven or 10% of those questions, I think, that has a little bit of a a contextual angle to it. Mm -hmm. But it really is like that 5%. And the 95%, you look at it and you think, yeah, this is just, we're just, we're fellow humans, we're asking the same questions (laughs) because the core is the same. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I find myself saying that more and more, I think, to my students, Mm. that that. Uh, what we have in common is so much greater than what distinguishes us. And I, you could take that, I suppose, in a reductionist direction um, and try to level all differences in an unhelpful way uh, or broad brush people or, or the past, and we don't want to do that. But, but yeah, absolutely, uh, to be made in God's image, to be sinners, uh, to be people who are level at the foot of the cross, um, that's, you know, that's the message of the Bible, and, and that's um, the identity of us uh, as, as believers. Uh, so that, that fit, I think, uh, I think makes sense. I, I wonder if you know, some of the contextualization, sincere as it, as it may be, I think we should grant that, that it, uh, it, it tends to sort of, if you think in, in New Testament Greek, focus maybe on some of the accent marks, um, which, are, which are important and sometimes crucial. Um, and but but maybe not put uh, at times enough emphasis on the actual text itself. Mm. Um, now you know somebody could be listening to this and say, okay, uh, you know I'm listening to Joel, you know, kind of front lines. He's uh, flying to this place and teaching for five days, and these people are just you know they're just so ready and hungry. Um, and it maybe, maybe this is everything, you know, in terms of mission work or in terms of what the church should be investing in. Uh, maybe everybody should be a cross-cultural theological educator. So I, I think we should ask the question, um, is, is this a panacea? Um, is, is this the primary way we ought to be doing missions or is there something else to be said? Is there more nuance than that? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll go through a, there are a couple of concepts that occur to me with that. Um, one, it, I do think it's, it's very, very possible, maybe likely. You know, if you, you jump on a plane, you go somewhere and you step in and you see a lot of activity and energy and maybe people are very receptive. So that's exciting. Um, it's easy if you just step in like that to feel like, okay, this is where it's all at. I don't see that same level of excitement in my own context. And uh, to feel like there's something unusual as in, it's almost like a different dimension for something on the the whole theological framework. If you live in a place, then, you know, it kind of levels out and it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you recognize there are some really great strengths, but then, I mean, it's just a place and people are just people. And so there are problems like, Anywhere you go and live and get to know a place, is, okay, there's strengths and weaknesses in each place. Um, a second concept, though, and this moves away from like the geographic mm-hmm. scale more to the theological education side of things. My, my personal vision for theological education, I would rather view it as a continuum that moves all the way from the most advanced. So we have like a PhD level classroom down to earlier today, and I'm talking to my two-year-old about what is the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how much she got, but I mean, it's theological education. If, if she's hearing that, she is getting stuff. She is learning stuff. So 
it's just straight up that scale. And what that means then is I, I would say we're always doing theological education in some sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I'm church planning, I'm trying to educate the members of the church. So, okay, it's just a continuous scale and it's all theological education. Still, I think we know what we mean when we say this, we're probably thinking of something a little more formalized, uh, classes and lectures and syllabi and quizzes and tests and so forth. So if I was going down that direction, um, I would say that you, you can only do this in a country like mine where there's already a history of gospel proclamation. Mm-hmm. The Philippines is strong because you have a, a deep network of churches there are parts of Southern Africa that work like this, parts of Latin America. So you go into a place where lots of activity is already there. And the goal is to deepen that sum. The goal is to um, hand people some tools. Mm-hmm. Men that want to, they're, they're doing ministry already, but you want to enable them to go to the next step. And that's really the perfect setting for it. You go into a place where that doesn't exist. You're going to have to do more pioneer work. It's a form of theological education, but it'll, it'll look very different than what I'm doing. So it's not the answer for all of missions. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to go in there and, and pull the back-breaking work of just establishing from ground zero in, in many countries around the world. And, and those men deserve our highest uh, accolades yeah. <laughs> and encouragement. I'd still do think once you get to that second stage and it's there, um, this is really effective. And for a context like the Philippines, this is what, this is what we need to do. Uh, I pastored for a year. I loved it. I miss it. I would love to pastor again. And I also don't think that I should be the one doing it in the Philippines. Mm. Um, I, I want to invest in giving tools to Filipino men that are ready and now are getting more and more a vision for missions outside the Philippines, mm-hmm. church planning all across the Philippines and beyond. And, and that's really where I need to position myself strategically. And, and it's, it's a delight, it's a privilege to do it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, if we have a listener who's saying, I, I really, I've, I've thought about this some, this conversation helps me uh, think about it a little bit more. I, would like to be a cross-cultural teacher. Maybe that is internationally. Uh, maybe that actually is some sort of cross-cultural context uh, here uh, domestically. Um, what are what are some of the core skills a person should uh, should acquire? What, what's what's been your experience? What would be your advice in terms of preparing for this kind of ministry? Um, I'll think of so I'll do I'll do three. And there's a bit of an order to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so one category of things would be like the missiological skills. Um, you could do cultural anthropology for missionaries, uh, language learning skills, just to, just to be aware of, let's say, the configuration or the shape that human cultures can come in. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. It really can be very helpful. You'll, you'll hear a comment or you'll come across something that could seem mysterious, baffling, inexplicable. And then if you know the category for it, it just, it makes a lot, a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're looking at it now and going, okay, oh, I'm seeing collectivism here. 
Um, you know, I'm seeing uh, an external locus of control. Um, you know, I mean, you just have some categories for this and you kind of know where to put those things. It even helps you, and this is important, it helps you realize that your birth culture or the, the culture of your upbringing is not the only configuration of how to get things done. It's not the only proper answer. So it kind of, um, it sets your, it presets your thinking away from monoculturalism, culturalism, and to recognize that there are other ways that people can think. And those are entirely valid, equally valid. Yeah. Um, but I, that maybe gets all the focus. <laughs> I would, that's category one. I would actually say more so would be the second category that comes to my mind. And that's just a, a robust, solid theological education. Yeah. Um, and I, that's going to be critical because you you have to know not just, oh, we have to recognize what Scripture says, but we also have to recognize what it doesn't say and know the configuration of that also, like in a, let's say in a biblical theology yeah. framework, to realize, okay, here is the here was the application of that, biblical idea in my context, you encounter it in another context and it looks really different. And you have to go back to the text again and, and carefully scrutinize the text to realize that actually that, that also was a good and fair biblical application. Right. Um, you never know, you never saw it in the text before, before you kind of shortcut. It's like, here it was. And that goes straight across to the way we did it. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize people are, are applying the text validly and legitimately with different situations, different questions. There might be different outcomes. So knowing that and knowing, having a robust enough understanding of the text also to answer questions you've never encountered before, uh, particularly in the initial years. Mm-hmm. People ask you certain things, and that's kind of off the grid of the way that you were educated. But you have to know what does the text say, what does it not say. And, and where can we go with that? Yeah. Um, but my third category in terms of how do we, how would a person prepare and be effective for cross-cultural ministry? I, I would take it one more layer and that would be personal appropriation of the truth mm-hmm. by which I just mean sanctification. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes um, there's a category out there or a label out there, the ugly American, somebody comes in and you, know, you can come in kind of triumphalist, okay, I'm going to solve this problem or, you know, not, not really learning culturally yeah. and having the skill of humility and teachability, <laughs> which is something I'm having to daily learn. Um, it never ends. Mm-hmm. That goes a really long way, mm-hmm. uh, particularly language learning. I mean, the initial years of language learning, you're going to feel like a child and it's, you're going to feel like a child for several years. And it never ends because you always are hearing expressions or cultural references or an idea and you don't, you know, you lose it. You don't, oh, I, I didn't hear what, you know, you just lose the train of thought. You can't follow the conversation yeah. because something went by and went past your language skills. You have to get really good at feeling stupid because you, you will feel stupid all the time. But then learning from your Christian brothers and Christian brothers and sisters and um, being taught by them. I, I love that. It, that, again, is a delight just to fellowship and the deep relations, relationships that come out of that. Um, to be teachable, is it's a, it's a privilege. It's a delight, even while it's hard. 
So anyway, those three start out with the, the cultural learning concepts, but that almost might be the most surface second uh, theological education in a robust way. And then third, personal sanctification, humility, being willing to learn and feel stupid a lot of the time. Yeah, that's good. I, I was thinking uh, on that third point of something in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, I think maybe the narrator says something to the effect of how you view things depends on where you're standing, you know, so your perspective, <laughs> your point of view. But it also depends on what, what sort of person you are. And mm-hmm. so it, it sounds to me what you're saying is sort of like a, there needs to be a runway, not, not that you master the Christian life before you head off cross-culturally, culturally, but there's a, a runway of um, a pursuit of Christ, a, a humility, a denial of self that, um, you know, that you really, really needs to ramp up toward missions and not just uh, hopefully start some, somewhere in the middle of missions, you know, after you arrive. Uh, well, we might have time for just one more question. This has been really uh, helpful, Joel. Uh, maybe you could share with us an anecdote or two, an experience that come to mind that would, uh, that would be motivational. How, uh, how can we think this way? And, and th- these are real people. These aren't just concepts we're talking about um, that would ignite our interest and, and help our interest come to life in uh, the great work of the gospel through this kind of theological education. Yeah, I can, uh, I can definitely run out the rest of the time with that. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll try painting a couple of pictures. Um, so here's one. We were in uh, southern Palawan, which is this, it's this long, thin, like, mountainous spine on the southern part of the Philippines. There's a church there, a, 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 just a, a very solid, excellent church, pastored by a BJU grad, uh, Pastor Jethro Malakau. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent a couple of months there, I think three or four months there when we were initially learning Tagalog, and it was extremely helpful for us. And also just a delight to be part of that church for those months. Mm-hmm. Um, to describe, describe the area, you know, you're you're right on the seashore. I mean, we were, I don't know, maybe a 10-minute walk from the ocean and the warm Pacific. And then you would I would get up sometimes in the morning for exercise. I'd bike down the uh, down the seashore. It's just empty, palm trees, uh, just quiet, beautiful. Every once in a while, maybe every every other mile, you would pass a fishing village and canoes with outriggers out front, um, just that kind of thing. And then you turn in and it's like these emerald green rice fields that turn into coconut plantations eventually. And then you go a little further and you hit the mountains. Um, this is beautiful kind of idyllic, but there's all kinds of stuff going on through the, the outreach of Brooks Point Bible Church all in that region. One of those was a, a little church up in the mountains and their pastor was away for a few months because he was getting married. And that was during our time that, w- that we were there. Mm-hmm. So I would get to go up in there uh, a couple of different weeks. I, I'd get up 7 a.m. Sunday morning and get on a mountain bike, you know, and just in my, my exercise clothes. And I'd bike a couple of miles, go across a couple of rivers, and you go up at least dirt trails, the trail like gets smaller and smaller as you go further up. And you end up on the top of this mountain ridge. And I mean, everything up there is like your stereotypical bamboo house on stilts uh, type of thing. Um, and uh, I, I'd stand up there and we, 
I preached to this group of people and we, we were going through some of the accounts in Daniel. Um, there's a huge cultural distance between us. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in my second language, Tagalog. Um, they're listening in their second language. So we're like trying to meet in the middle. And there was a guy that would sit in the front if I used certain expressions he would like informally turn around to the audience and explain while I was preaching, he'd explain to them what I meant and stuff. Um, so anyway, we got through it. The delightful thing about it would be, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm an American speaking to people up in this mountain region about stories that happened in the ancient Near East. Right. And these things resonated. Yeah. And they would, you know, we, I would kind of, I would talk about an irony or a turn of events or some dramatic point in the story. And you could see on their faces, they light up, they got it. It made sense. And they're responding to it. And uh, the relevance of that, like we were saying earlier, just speaking to the human heart. Um, but the delight too of just sharing fellowship with people. And I, I couldn't be any more different, it feels like. Hmm. And yet we, we were we were really one rejoicing in the same truths. Yeah. Um, and that church is going forward. It's it's been pastored by a BJMBC graduate. Um, so it that just a delight to be part of that and step yeah. into those kinds of uh, privileges. Those are the times when I, I I stand there and I think, how on earth did I get here? Mm -hmm. That I get to do this. Mm -hmm. um, completely different scenario. Instead of the southern Philippines, it's north of me. A couple of six or seven hours. And uh, actually, Baguio, it's the city where my grandfather was stationed during World War II. Hmm. Um, so it's a mountainous area. If you think of like, if you've seen pictures of the favelas in Brazil um, or Rio, where you have these colorful houses all up the side of a hill, mm -hmm. it's, it's picturesque, it's beautiful. And the guys that were coming in were coming from, some of them five or six hours away, they would ride in on their motorcycles uh, they're coming from places that may not have any electricity, any internet. And so they would be loading up anything I could give them on little USB drives yeah. because they weren't going to be able to connect into the internet once they went back and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But I have, I think I had like 20 or 30 guys. We spent five days together talking through the Holy Spirit, salvation, the doctrine of Christ, um, you know, it was six hours a day, so it was mentally exhausting, and they're asking me these great questions. I'm having to think, and you know, but at the end of the end of the day, thinking about the doctrine of Christology and salvation for six hours, I mean, my heart's just on fire and overflowing. Mm -hmm. And um, every day, I would finish my time, <laughs> a little goofy routine. I'd walk back home, maybe maybe a mile and a half or something. And uh, I would always buy myself a little Coke and a Snickers bar. And that was my, you know, my little personal reward as I'm walking home. And, you know, I'm tired, worn out, but just rejoicing, walking along with my Snickers bar. And uh, I just think, you know, I, I'm glad, ironically, um, I, I'm glad my friends don't know about this because then I'd have to share the privilege. Because this is just so much fun. This is where it's at. And uh, I'm just really glad I get to do this. Hmm. And both of those, I, I look at those memories and I could multiply many others. Um, I, I, I ironically say I'm glad my friends don't know. I, I hope some of my friends can find out hmm. and jump in and be a part of it hmm. because they just remind me of the delightful privilege of, of what I get to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the secret's out. Uh, that's... <laughs> 
That that's great. <laughs> well, thank you uh, so much for contributing to uh, the podcast today. Thank you for helping us uh, get a little bit of insight to uh, what the Lord has burdened you to do and enabled you to do cross culturally. And uh, thank you for investing your life. Uh, I've known you for a long time. Thank you for investing your life, your training, um, your character into uh, the Great Commission and uh, the work of Christ. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Theologically Speaking. We trust that in the coming days, God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.